I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm going to start this conversation with a song that, from the moment I heard it, stirred a sense of wonder in me, and I'm not sure why. Now, you can probably hear that there's an odd rhythm to it, what singer-songwriter Peter Gabriel says is a 7-4 rhythm. He composed it at a crossroads in his career after indeed climbing Salisbury Hill in London and letting the history and the beauty and the timelessness of the place wash over him. In his new book about the experience of awe, psychologist and researcher Dacher Keltner writes, Music opens our minds to the sublime beyond affectation and limitations. And then he asks, how does this work, though, that a pattern of sounds might lead us to understand, in the case of awe, the vast mysteries of life? And that's where we'll begin. Dacher Keldner is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, where he studies emotions like compassion and awe. He's the author of books that include Born to be Good, and his new book is titled Awe, the New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And he joins us from Berkeley, California. Professor, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Kerry, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We could spend the whole hour, I think, on your chapter about musical mm. awe, but I thought we'd start with that experiment that you and your colleague Alan Cohen set up yeah. to understand how awe is channeled through music yeah. to us. How's it work? Yeah, I, I think this is one of the big scientific mysteries, not only about awe, but in general, how does music work? Uh, we're just beginning to understand. And one of the basic questions that you can ask is, what kind of emotions can music stir in us, right? So Alan Cowan, who is a, a gifted, what we would call a computational uh, scientist, knows a lot of math. And um, we presented um, all kinds of music clips or sounds, p pieces of songs to listeners in China and the United States. Um, and we found that, uh, it, that music elicited 13 really distinct emotions, right, from energetic to love uh, to, you know, um, to horrifying, and then awe, you know, the sense of encountering vast mysteries in a musical song. Uh, what was even more striking to me, Carrie, is that we then took traditional Chinese music, which has a whole different acoustic mm. structure than the songs that we first played to our participants. And the same thing happened, which is that this very different kind of music elicited these same emotions, both in Chinese and uh, United States individuals, the latter really had, don't have much experience listening to Chinese traditional music. So that tells us that music, as the philosopher Suzanne Langer has argued, who really has influenced my thinking on this, is a, a tonal language of feeling, including awe and our encounters with the sublime. So that would suggest that we are not conditioned 
somehow to associate different kinds of sounds and music with emotional experiences. This is something more, what, innate and instinctive? How would you describe it? Yeah, both are really true, as is always the case in when we think about nature and nurture, or however you want to call it. You know, humans have been making music for 80, 100,000 years. It predates language. We've been singing songs and developing rhythms and dancing and so forth. It's, it's a deep part of our human evolution and therefore a, a part of our universal human nature, if you will. And that's why the work with Alan Cowan is so striking, how similar our emotional reactions are in the U.S. and China to Chinese traditional music and, and other kinds of music. At the same time, and there's remarkable research on this, uh, le- music is a way in which we learn the emotional meanings, the moral meanings, the social meanings of, of our culture, of our place, or what Peter Gabriel in his song said, home, <laughs> home, right? Yeah. So there are studies showing that a young child, if, if they hear the sounds of music um, from a stranger that's from their culture, they're more likely to cooperate or be with that uh, individual. So music is both part of human nature, universal, and at the same time, wildly personal and culturally specific, telling us where we find our home in life. I think you're speaking to something that you write, which is even if we hear unfamiliar music that we may not understand, there is still this recognition that we are tuning into something larger. I think you say a, a kind of collective identity. Build that out a little bit, will you? What that means for cultures? Yeah, you know, one of the ideas in the scientific study of music that really begins with Klaus Schera um, in Switzerland and it's really spread is that what music does, It ha- music has 20 different features, you know, pitch and rhythm and rise and fall and contours and, uh, and the like. Uh, and that the combination of those features that gives the music its emotional feeling really captures how we express emotion uh, in our daily lives. So one of this, there's a whole literature on sacred sounds, right, where we chant and we sing or we hear chorus or Bono or even Peter Gabriel. His, his voice has a little bit of that sacred sound quality to it. And, and the, the sound of, of that music really captures and symbolizes how we express awe and wonder in our social lives, whoa, ah, right? It starts to sound like a <laughs> chorus. Um, and so uh-huh. what that tells us is that, you know, when we hear sounds like that collectively, we all are sharing an understanding in the case of awe of what is mysterious and vast and sublime and beyond our comprehension. My daughter and I were uh, trekking in Bhutan about ten year, five years ago we were lucky enough to be invited into this, you know, this old monastery at 15,000 feet elevation. And we sat there for an hour listening to them chant these old spiritual songs, these rhythms, right? And, it sound, and we suddenly realized, like, we are all together, given the sounds that felt so awe-inspiring, just considering together what is vast and mysterious about life. So how, do, how does this broaden out and... How does it get us in touch with a collective understanding of, of life? Well, it does through the patterns of sounds that point our minds to, in the case of all, what's, what's really vast and mysterious. 
You know, I just got back from Bhutan, mm. and we had we weren't trekking, but we had a similar experience yeah. in a nunnery wow. where there was uh, a, a group of younger children along with the nuns mm. chanting prayers. Mm. But, you know, you wouldn't even have to listen, yeah. and I didn't understand the words, yeah. to be drawn in and really hypnotized by the sound of the collective voice and the rhythm that they were expressing together. Yeah, there are these universal sounds that we've been talking about, you know, that convey things like suffering and awe and compassion mm -hmm. and horror, right? And defiance, right? When you think about the sounds of punk rock, it's just about social injustice and defiance. And we, we as humans, when we hear these sounds, which we've been producing for hundreds of thousands of years in our evolution, we suddenly together are joined in an understanding of what, in the case of all, like it's, this is sacred, right? This is about mm -hmm. what's primordial and good in life. And that's part of the function of music, musicologists are now saying, is that it's this way in which cultures teach people. This is how we, as people in Minnesota or here in Berkeley, California, or some part of China or India, this is how we collectively make sense of, you know, what is sacred and divine and, and meaningful, is there a, a piece of contemporary music that you would experience the way, uh, you know, I said in the introduction that I experienced Peter Gabriel's yeah. song? I mean, yeah, something from modern music? What would it be? Thank you for asking. I really appreciate that. You know, and in writing this book, uh, you know, it's a personal book in many ways, and I got to think about how important music is to my uh, sense of identity and home to return to Peter Gabriel's mm -hmm. word. You know, and the Beatles were very important in my childhood uh, growing up in Laurel Canyon. But, you know, it's so interesting. I'll give you a couple, Carrie. One was, uh, you know, I grew up in the country in my teen years where I mainly heard, you know, country and Western, which I'd never liked, you know, although mm -hmm. there's great country and Western. Uh, and, and uh, you know, bands like Ted Nugent, you know. And, <laughs> and when I went to college, uh, this young guy was playing Brian Eno's ambient music and from his mm. music for airports, the first song, one, one. And when I heard it, I had never, I didn't even know what this was, you know, ambient music, Brian <laughs> Eno, David Bowie, et cetera. It blew my mind. And I will, I, I was like, wow, there's a realm of consciousness that, uh, that makes me feel like I understand life and my point in life. So and I've listened to that 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 album and that song. I bet I don't know five thousand times, ten thousand times. Um, when I first heard the Sex Pistols, "God Save the Queen," you know, I come out of a family that protests injustice. Nineteen seventy eight, you know, and and the sounds of punk rock. I, again, I didn't grow up around it; it wasn't part of my culture. But I was like, oh yeah, that gives me goosebumps. So you know, it's it's mysterious, and this is why it's hard to study. But we are making progress. <laughs> And again, I think that, you know, and it's such an interesting exercise for your, our audience, Carrie, and I do this when I talk about awe to, to public groups, is think about a time, as you introduced the show, when a song or a piece of music just told you, this is the point of your life, right? Mm -hmm. And when people start mm -hmm. telling those stories, they start tearing up. You know, they can't make sense of it, but somehow music is a compass to what really matters. 
I love that idea because, and, and we've done shows on this mm. before. If you can, you know, remember exactly where you were when you first heard the music, or the music kind of, you know, penetrated your your life, and you, exactly. I think, associate that with being at, as you're saying, at a moment when things are changing, when things seem new, that you identify with a particularly special part of your life. So, and and you know what? I love the spectrum of answers that we've given here. (laughs) For me, Peter Gabriel couldn't, I think, couldn't be more different than the Sex Pistols. (laughs) Uh, maybe a little closer to Brian Eno. Yeah. But, um, and I have that to tell you, right there is the dimension of human experience, right? And it's yeah, such a ahead. fun experience, too, because I asked a very high status uh, Ivy League professor this question, and she was kind of embarrassed. She said, I got to be honest with you, it was new kids on the block, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's okay, that's right. because the sublime and awe come in many different uh, forms, <laughs> and we have to honor that. That's right. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. I'm in conversation today with Dacker Keltner. He's a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. And we're having a discussion about his new book, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder, and how it can transform your life. And leading up to this discussion, I went on Twitter, and I asked uh, for listeners to share some experiences Mm of awe with me. And Dacker, here's, uh, here's some of the answers I got, and I'll sprinkle them into our conversation. How terrific. I want to share a couple of these now. Um, a listener says, the moment I stepped into the inside of La Sagrada Familia yeah. in Barcelona, I'm not religious, wasn't raised Catholic. I instantly started crying mm. at the beauty, and I could feel God's presence. Mm. That sounds like reverence and awe, and I, I'm taken by the fact that our correspondent does not consider themselves to be religious, but they felt an overwhelming sense of a divine presence Mm. there. What's happening in that experience, would you say? You know, I just got goosebumps hearing this example. It's so fascinating how how contagious awe is. Yeah, you know, one of the universal sources of awe from our research is um, visual design, right? It could be a painting, uh, it could be architecture, most classically. Uh, some of our people write about, like, you know, fancy watches and their their mechanisms. Um, and what I love about this is, first of all, Sagrada Familia, you know, spectac- Gaudi's spectacular uh, construction. He died. He was a mystic, and he was living by it and I think got hit by a, a streetcar or something as he was building it. What a great wow. architect. So the, obviously the we could under, try to understand this response in terms of, what it is about the space inside, and it's spectacular to produce all. It's vast, it's beautiful, it's organic, it has all these surprising patterns. What I love about this response more in the specifics is two things. One is the crying. People cry reflexively when they encounter awe-inspiring things. When my daughter and I heard those monks chanting, we just start crying, you know. And, and crying is a specific physiological response that's part of one branch of your nervous system where you're really open and, and engaged with, with people and ideas, right? So that crying is very interesting. The second thing that I love, and this is true uh, in many different ways of awe, is that people, even if they're not religious or don't go to church or hesitate in using the word spirit or soul, when they uh, 
feel awe, they will say, I felt the presence of something divine that is primary and good mm-hmm. and universal. 40% of Americans find it in nature. You know, I go backpacking with my daughter every year, and there's always a moment where we're just standing there thinking, this is spirit. Um, William James, the great American philosopher and psychologist, said, you know, his big contribution in studying mystical experiences was we find it in so many ways, you know, from prayer to nature to, for him, laughing gas. And and so I, what I like about awe is it, it allows all of us to say, this is a moment of the divine. Let's let's reflect on it. Yeah, I want to talk about nature and awe yeah. here in just a moment. But here's Lucy. Yeah. She says, I feel awe in autumn mm. when leaves fall and the scenery becomes drab. Mm. Then it rains, and that's when the lichens and moss shine. Here's Jay. Having posted sunrises daily for two consecutive years, I am still awed by the arrival of Helios it's a reflective, solitary experience. Mm. Let's talk about um, one of the experiments that you did with the awe walk. <laughs> and um, I love this because, yeah. and, and you included some photographs yeah. in this. This is great. Um, where we could see how your participants were being changed by this experience of nature and awe. So how'd you set the experiment up? Yeah, and, you know, this is thanks to the work of Virginia Sturm at UC San Francisco, one of my collaborators, in awe. And uh, we um, decided um, to see if we could test the powers of awe because we know it makes people feel less stressed and kind of put things in perspective, that they have more time, benefits for the immune system. Uh, And so we developed this idea called the awe walk, which is very simply you go out on your regular walk you you sh- you just wander. You go to a place that's a little mysterious. You look at small things and then vast things. Maybe you look up at the sky um, and just find awe, right? Just go on a, a little journey once a week to find awe. And they did that for eight weeks. And then uh, in the other condition, people did a vigorous walk like we all do or many of us do. One of the really nice twists of this study, Carrie, is these participants were 75 years old or older. Mm-hmm. So that's an age where people around you are starting to pass away. Um, you know, maybe somebody really close to you. And so there, there's a little bit of a rise in anxiety and depression at that age. So it's a good group to really test this. They did it once a week. And the key findings are they felt more awe with each successive walk uh, each week. They felt less daily distress, right? You know, they're they're less physical pain, less psychic pain on a daily basis just by looking for a little bit of awe. And then what you observed, and thanks so much for picking this up, what happened is we asked them to take a selfie each walk for the eight weeks. And in the awe walk condition, the self is no longer in the center of the picture. It starts to drift off to the side and get small, (laughs) which is what happens with awe. And and then there's a greater sense of the broader context that you are in, you know, the trees or playgrounds or the like. And that's one of the great things about awe is it 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 makes you small. Uh, it it reduces the loud voice of your ego, and it makes you aware of the the broad life context you're in. So was, I, we were really proud of that and study. I mean, yeah. This so just to just to zero in on this yeah. for a minute. Um, so the subjects. Week by week, you would see 
changes on their faces. I could see, yeah. I felt like I could see that too. Yeah. A relaxing, yeah. a, you know, an awareness or something. But this is so interesting that you'd see the center of the photograph change without, do you think your subjects even really being aware of it? Yeah. I, you know, and thanks for reminding our listeners there and me, <laughs> they also smiled more and you know, the smile is a mm-hmm. very reliable mm-hmm. sign of joy. But yeah, you know, the I, I believe, as do a lot of social scientists, that one of the central psychological problems we face today is, is focusing too much on the self and me. And then in young people, entitlement and narcissism. And then in people my age, like too much worry about myself and my body, et cetera. We ruminate. And, and there are pretty robust studies showing a focus on the self really is a pathway to anxiety, rumination, daily distress, depression, and the like. And in this study, very nicely, people's self-focus, it just diminished. The self gets smaller in the all-walk condition. It drifts off. And, and importantly, I think one of the magical dynamics of awe with music and nature and other people and collective stuff is that it reminds you that you are part of something larger than yourself. You're part of a, a community, a movement, an aesthetic set of values with respect to music, whatever it is, and how vital that is to well-being today. Tim included a really beautiful Mm. photo. He says, a solitary freight train rumbling into a thunderstorm in the Chihuahuan Desert in the Marfa Plateau in far west Texas. Wow. It's a gorgeous photo. Here's Suzanne. The first thing I thought of was how it felt in my son's first grade class. His teacher was the best and loved those kids so much. I was filled with awe in her classroom. My son is now a high school junior. I mean, this is an experience that is still very vivid to Suzanne. Um, you know, years ago, about this this experience of awe, and when you were talking about community and mm-hmm. the collective expression of that, I thought of this one. Yeah. You know, uh, people get a lot of awe when they think about the work of teachers and, you know, coordinating 30 kids to learn. And, you know, it's pretty amazing to me. Uh, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. And um, that that really relates to, I think, one of the more surprising discoveries in our 10 to 15 years of studying awe is around the world, 26 different countries, the kind of most universal source of awe is not nature or spirituality. And those are great. But it's the moral beauty of other people, their kindness, their courage, their strength, their resilience, how they overcome obstacles. Um, and and that just shines through in in just how people find awe, right, in the generosity of a stranger who gives a lunch to an unhoused individual. In a, We had a story, we gathered these stories from 26 countries of a, a mom, you know, whose daughter was born with uh, club feet, I think. I think this was from Ireland. And then she was watching her as a teenager dance on stage, you know, just how strong and, and good the human spirit can be, moves us to awe, right? That humans have so much potential and capacity. And, you know, when a lot of us think about teachers underpaid, you know, really changing so many people's lives, uh, mm-hmm. it, can, it can bring about a sense of, of awe. And I love asking people whom I get to teach 
think about a mentor in your life, right? Just think about that mm-hmm. for five or 10 minutes okay. that somebody who shaped the direction of your life and people will, they'll tear up, they'll feel a little lump in their throat. They're like, wow, you know, we have such capacity for good. Margot says, <clears throat> the rare moment when I'm able to see one of my kids is totally consumed by play yeah. and focused on the work of childhood. Mm. Their developing brains are a marvel. Uh, Rob says, I was awed by the counter-protest rainbow, rainbow wall at a St. Paul Public Library drag reading hour. I was so thankful that several groups were able to organize and get together such a supportive response so quickly. And then here's a listener who says, watching my son headline to a sold-out crowd at the 7th Street entry on the night before (laughs) Christmas Eve. (laughs) You can relate to this. I am still in awe. You know, Dagger, I think it would be valuable, and maybe I should have done this at the beginning, um, to to understand the working definition that you have for awe, for your research, because... I want to. I want our listeners to hear that this is not some stereotype, numbed out, blissed out. No, not at all. Experience. You're working with a different definition. So, what is it? Yeah, and you know the stories that you've uh, so thoughtfully curated here, Carrie, raise this question, right? Wow, awe is coming from rainbows and children and music and protests and the like. What is it? Um, and awe is the feeling. We have when we encounter vast mysteries we can't make sense of with our current knowledge. We've done a lot of work. I don't want to bore you with it. Awe is different from the feeling of beauty. It's more vast. Uh, it's different than surprise. It has, you know, this bigness to it. It's really different from fear. And often people confuse awe with fear, but we've done a ton of research showing that it is really a distinct mental state. As one example, you know, the the way that people vocalize awe, which I've already done, is, whoa. And the way they vocalize fear is like, ah! You know, so really different in many different (laughs) ways. But awe is the feeling of encountering vast mysteries we don't understand. Okay, so I promise you will not be boring me if you tell me the difference between the experience, the emotional experience of awe and beauty. Yeah. Because, Because I think a lot of us think of you know, when I thought of experiences of awe, they're almost always in nature. Yep. And I think that I might associate that with the, um, you know, the experience, the visual experience of seeing beauty. But I think I hear you saying it's yeah. different. Yeah, it's so um, striking, this question of awe versus beauty, the feeling of beauty. You know, this question... Really, in Western European thought, it really is one of the questions that animated thinking about awe. Edmund Burke, a great Irish philosopher, tried to differentiate the two. Uh, Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher, likewise. Like, how is awe out of nature or listening to music or looking at a painting different from beauty? It's a tough question to really crack scientifically because they are so interrelated. But I would really um, direct our audience to the work We've done with Alan Cowan again in music and in gifts, alancowan.com. And we have a paper uh, looking at paintings as well that really pulls apart our subjective feeling of awe, vast mystery versus beauty. Um, And there are a couple of ways in which they really differ. 
Um, one is that beauty is more understandable, right? It's it doesn't have the mystery or the confusion or or lack of uh, certainty or or pr- uncertainty that awe has. So you look at a you look at a rolling field of flowers and you're like, oh, that's so beautiful, right? You look at mm-hmm. as one of our listeners talked about, like a wild storm. My daughter and I were caught in an electrical storm in the High Sierras last summer, and you know. We looked up and, man, lightning bolts were hitting the the valley across the way. We were like, this is awesome and terrifying. It had no beauty in it. So beauty is is easier to understand in music or painting or nature or human beings. And then it doesn't have the scale that awe has. Awe, mm. just, it just connotes vastness, right? Like you go to the Mayan temples and you're like, those things are vast, <laughs> and and that's big. And beauty is a little bit smaller and more human in scale. And and then Edmund Burke had this observation um, that beauty is also kind of more affectionate and softer, right? It's like, oh, it's kind of mm-hmm. pleasing. Awe doesn't have that. It's more like, wow, you know, this is transcendent. I got to make sense of it. So so it's beauty less mysterious and uh, smaller. And that's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Does does all really have to embrace a component of mystery to it to be awe? It does. You know. You know. We, uh, Jonathan Hyde and I, offer that as one of our definitions. That awe, by by its very definition and in its core essence, is really about encountering something that you just it, you can't make sense of it. You know. You look at it and you're like, I don't know how using my knowledge right now I can make sense of this. Um, you know, and it can come in many different forms. It might be a piece of music for you. Uh, Charles Darwin, when he was thinking about his theory of evolution for 30 years, and I write about this in the book, he kept seeing things, you know, in nature. And he was just like, how could this be? This little ecosystem in a bank by a river of all these different species kind of living together. What's going on here? So really has to have mystery. So while we're talking about Darwin, yeah. such an interesting chapter on on how meaningful his research mm. is to this. Yeah. What, it, what do you think the evolutionary purpose is for awe? Thank you for asking that question, you know, Carrie. And um, I approach all phenomena just trying to think about why do we have these experiences, these emotions like compassion, and in this case, gratitude in our personal story, you know, and then also in our deep evolutionary story about who we are as uh, the hominid that we are. And I think awe, and we have a lot of data that converge on these ideas, does two things for us. One is that it just quickly makes us better members of communities, right? Awe leads us to share, cooperate, help somebody in need, empathize, um, you know, sacrifice, uh, develop a sense of collective identity. You know, um, in one of our studies, we just had college students stand by this replica of a T-Rex skeleton, totally awe-inspiring. And we said, who are you? So good. And they were like, I am. And they start, their sense of self wasn't about separateness. It was about shared qualities, right? I'm a human being. I'm, I'm a student. I, I believe in this social cause. So awe makes us better more vibrant members of communities. And we now know, Carrie, one of our defining strengths 
as a species, I believe our defining strength was the ability to be collective and to respond to threats Mm. collectively. And then the second thing, it's a little bit more uh, subtle that awe really helps us with, and I write about this in one of the last chapters, is awe changes how we understand the world. It changes the kind of knowledge that we build to an effective navigation of the world. And we move from a more narrow, self-focused, analytical, constrained kind of understanding, right, which is necessary, break things down into their elements and so forth, into a more holistic, what a lot of people who study teaching and the like call systems view of the world. Oh, that's an ecosystem. One of my early experiences of all was looking at a tide pool And I just saw all these little species working together. And I was like, that's an ecosystem. Wow. Um, Likewise, socially, when you have an experience of awe at a concert to return to music and you're all, you know, lighting the you're showing your Apple phone to show the light or raising your fist together. Mm -hmm. You don't know these people. They're strangers. But suddenly in that feeling of awe, you're like, I'm part of this collective and this is my tribe. So awe opens us up to the big systems that we are part of. If you've just tuned into the show, welcome. You've missed a terrific introduction and beginning of the conversation, so I hope you'll go back and listen on the podcast. Dacher Keltner is with us. He's a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. And we're talking about the research and the psychology and the experience of awe. Comes from his new book, Awe, The Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And he's joining us today from... Berkeley, California. Um, One of the questions that I have about um, an experience of awe is how, I guess, how indelible Mm. it is, how long lasting. And Mm. and I'm thinking about this experiment that you did where you sent people down the American Mm. River. I I think you know this river quite well. It's familiar to you as well. Is that right? Okay. Um, and you were studying the physiological responses to mm. what you call wild awe. Mm. But then I want to know about, you know, if we don't get that, maybe we have an experience like that once a year. Yeah. How changed are we? Yeah. So talk about the experiment, if you would, first. Yeah. Um, I've been lucky to study awe in ways that consider, does it benefit people? You know, and I've always been interested in that in the research that we do, and uh, came into contact with a veteran named Stacy Bear, who's one of my heroes mm-hmm. in the book. Uh, and his conviction coming out of his um, service in uh, Iraq and elsewhere was, you know, the veterans who have twice the rates of depression and anxiety as ordinary citizens, um, they're awe-deprived. You know, they love courage, they love pushing themselves, and then when they return, they, they lose that. And, and trauma, right? And so what we did in this experiment when Stacy was uh, leading the outdoors adventures at the Sierra Club is we took two groups down for a day the, uh, rafting on the American River uh, in the foothills of the Sierras in California. Um, it just so happens that I used to raft on this part of the American River with my family, and it's awesome. You know, you're in ravines, you flow in the raft, you go through these wild ri- rapids that... You know, that throw you out of the raft on occasion and are just thrilling and exhilarating. Um, And one of our groups that we tested was uh, veterans. And the other group was 
students in high school from really under-resourced high schools in Northern California who hadn't been camping, who hadn't seen a night sky of stars, you know, who had tougher lives than a lot of young people. They rafted for a day. We we videotaped them. And indeed, it was awe-inspiring. We heard a lot of like, woo, when they were rafting. Uh, <laughs> fascinating, Carrie, is we measured their cortisol at the start and the end of the trip. Cortisol is a stress hormone. You measure it from saliva. A lot of fun gathering saliva out there. <laughs> and what happened is they're... they're body's physiology started to synchronize. And this is a common thing of Oz. We start to sync up physiologically with other people. And then we measured them for the course of a week. And what we found is a day or half day of rafting, a week later, our high school kids felt more connected to their families, less stressed and happier. And we found that the veterans had a 30% drop in the symptoms of PTSD, like vigilance and sleep disruption. Mm. And, but, but your question is even more challenging. How indelible are these experiences of awe, right? I think our audience would probably say, man, I've had experiences of awe. You know, like when I got to hug the Dalai Lama before speaking on a, mm, in a panel yeah. with him. That change our mm. lives, that give us big ideas about life. And that has yet to be studied, but I think that it's there and true. And our study finds evidence of just the beginnings of that, a weak benefit from a half day of awe. You know, I, I, I want to share one reaction from one of the teens who was on the rafting yeah. trip that you've included in the book. <clears throat> he says, or she, there was a point today where I noticed everything. There was smoke rolling over the hills. I felt in awe. There was water cresting and breaking over the boat. I felt wonder and I felt peaceful. Mm. I hope that teenager gets to experience that again and again and again because Mm. that is real. Right there to me feels like kind of the meaning of being alive. Yeah, you know, I thanks for reading that quote, Carrie. Um, You know, and and such awe in that quote, right? that really mm-hmm. maps onto the science, I noticed everything. They're seeing the whole system mm-hmm. around them. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel wonder and curious and peaceful. Um, yeah, I really, you know, I've been teaching young people for um, 35 years, 30 years, you know, at Berkeley and Madison, Wisconsin and Stanford and elsewhere and many, and, you know, and, and then I raised two daughters. And I really feel like our culture does not give young people enough awe uh, our culture mm-hmm. really works against the experiences of wonder and awe for those who grow up in, you know, under-resourced communities where there aren't the parks and music classes and so forth. So I think part of my hope with this book, and we're going to be developing awe curricula at the Greater Good Science Center, is like oh, wow. get kids awe. It teaches them the point of life, as you said. You know, I think there's a an assumption and and you you can speak to this since you're in interactions with yeah. uh students all the time but i think there's this assumption that they've seen it all so early yeah you know information and yeah. beauty and experiences at their fingertips and that they are numbed in some way yeah. to awe in a way that previous generations were not but i think i hear you saying that's not true yeah, you know, in some ways, I think for our young people, it's the best and worst of times of all. 
you know? Um, the best of times, think about how they share music, how they share visual mm -hmm. art. Um, mm -hmm. There's a real rise right now in interest in the collective. We've been through 40 years of narcissism in American culture, U.S. culture, uh, in some subcultures. And, and it really, you know, there's game nights and more co interesting collective housing and so forth. But at the same time, you know, numbing. Um, I really worry about the smartphone. Um, you know, we surveyed 2,600 people around the world. What brings you awe? No one mentioned a technological device. <laughs> they're really? small. Yeah, they're small. <laughs> they're constrained, and you take selfies. Uh, and so I think the challenge is to take this pluralism of all that is true today. We can find it in so many ways, so many political ideas and art and music and 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 forms of moral beauty and the like, collective stuff. But how do we get back to it physically, immersively? Um, and that, I think, is our challenge facing us. Did you just say we've been through 40 years of narcissism? Yeah, you know, when I teach human happiness uh, around the world, a lot of the survey data suggest in different forms, you know, and Gene Twenge is important on this, that the yeah, la last right. 40 years, uh, we've just become too self-focused. You know, it. we just think about the self too much. We wonder about it. We, we don't wonder about it. We ruminate. We get anxious about the self. We wonder about our status. We look at posts. You know, am I getting likes on my Instagram, et cetera? I'm envious. Um, and we got to get out of that. You know, we have to, to quote Jane Goodall, one of my heroes, observing awe in chimpanzees, she said, awe is being amazed at things outside of the self. You have a paragraph. Um about awe and the inner voice. And I think this speaks to what we're talking about. You say, finding awe in encounters with moral beauty mm. or music or when struck by big ideas quiets the voice of that interfering or nagging neurotic. So that's where that, I mean, that nagging neurotic voice yeah. is chirping in your ear yeah. when you're looking at Instagram or Twitter and comparing what they've got that you don't have. Yeah. Give me a larger sense of how we manage that inner voice yeah. and tune it more into an experience of awe. Yeah, thank you. What a what a deep question and we could we could take take a couple of hours on that one, you know. You know, Good. we we have this rich knowledge structure and set of feelings that is put together in a constellation in the mind that we call the self or me, you know, and it has goals and aspirations and standards and illusions and ideas about who I am and, and, and a recognition of my traits and my preferences and my hope for status. That's all great. You know, we need that to navigate our complicated social worlds, a sense of self. If we don't have that, we'd be abused and exploited. But it's on, it's on overdrive right now, right? It is way too active. Um, where we think too much about the self, we compare ourselves too much to the wrong people, we ruminate about our imperfections, we, ha we hold unrealistic aspirations, a lot of young women, for example, about who I could be, who I should be. Um, and, and what we lose sight of is other people and the collectives that I'm part of, the ecosystems I'm part of. Uh, a lot of experimental evidence shows that focusing on the self makes you anxious. 
It makes you ruminate. It makes you critique yourself. It, it, mm-hmm. it lose, makes you lose sight of just being accepting of our foibles and, and struggles. That's life, right? And one of the most exciting things I find about awe, and I'll give you a couple studies, is it shifts us really quickly from the self-focus to wondering about community, thinking about ecosystems, wondering about the beauty of other people. You know, you, in one study, Paul Piff on the Berkeley campus had people look up into trees, which are awe-inspiring, or look out to a building. And one minute of awe led our college students to feel less narcissistic, less entitled, Hmm. more likely to help a stranger, right? Um, We have done other experiments. You know, you just read about something that's awe-inspiring, think about an awe-inspiring moment in your life. um, And it makes you less stressed out about the daily hassles in your life. You take, we gathered uh, people from 42 countries. We didn't gather them. We stopped them in Yosemite (laughs) National Park when they were looking at the (laughs) first view of El Capitan (laughs) and the Great Valley. We said, draw yourself and write me. And in that condition, they drew a smaller self with larger pictures of nature around them that in an appropriate control Mm -hmm. condition. So I really believe one of the, actionable things coming from the science is that little moments of awe get me out of the self-focused, self-critical mindset to wonder about the bigger things I'm part of, which is, like you said, Carrie, that's why we're here, right, is to think about what's my point, what am I connected to that's larger than me. You know, one of the questions that I was thinking about when we were talking about the experiment of awe walks and the fact that you zeroed in on people who were 75 and older was, you know, whether the capacity or the intensity of the experience of awe diminishes with age. I hope it doesn't, but what's your research tell you about that? You know, we, we really don't know, although I have a hypothesis with some suggestive evidence. The first thing that's interesting is a lot of the pleasures of life diminish, right? You save up and you buy the Pottery Barn sofa and you think it's going to change your life. And it's pretty for about half a day or 20 minutes. And then it's just the sofa, right? Um, (laughs) You know, you get the new job, et cetera. Um, Awe doesn't operate according to what is called the law of hedonic adaptation, that we adapt to the pleasures of life. Instead, awe gets richer. In our awe walk study we talked about, People found more awe over the course of the study with each walk. Awe gets richer and deeper with experience. And, you know, one of the things that we know about the developmental trajectory of of emotion more generally as we get older is, is things get more complicated. They're located in more deeper narratives of history, right? Whoa, this is how I felt awe when I first heard that Peter Gabriel song, et cetera. And people, it becomes more poignant uh, and also a little bit more other-oriented. Like I'm thinking not just about myself, what I'm proud of, but what I feel grateful for, et cetera. So my hypothesis, and we should go get data on this, is awe gets richer as you age. And that's one of the reasons why as people, up until about age 75, People get happier with life. They find it more meaningful, more awe-inspiring. You know, I mean, this is, I thought about this through the book, whether this 
um, I don't know, the way we lean into novelty, and you've just yeah. you've just described that, yeah. right? You get something new, and it's wonderful for mm. a short amount of time. I think about this all the time. Yeah. But whether we are in some ways kind of conditioned to think mm. to associate awe with novelty yeah. and how I think essential it is to pull away from that and actually give some thought to um, everyday surroundings. I mean, this is what you did with the awe walk. Yeah. This is what we're talking about with your experience on this part of the American river. Yeah. You'd seen it before. Yeah. You'd experienced it before. Um so if you would speak a little bit to maybe the misassumption that, that yeah. awe is really wrapped up in novelty. What a spectacular question. Um, you know, and, and I would add like extraordinary and rare, you know, and when you ask people, hey, tell me what you think awe is. And they'll, they'll reflect and they'll say, oh, it was when I hugged Bono at the concert, you know, that time when I was 19. <laughs> or, you know, I bungee jumped in in vietnam you know that one time but one of our discoveries carrie is in different countries you know we asked people for a couple of weeks like tell us if you had an experience of awe every night and they would write about it and then we would decide whether it really met some criteria of awe and people feel awe two to three times a week in different parts of the world oh. every day awe you don't need to go really? to what's totally new or rare you can find it right around you. And, you know, that finding, almost more than anything uh, alongside the moral beauty prominence in awe, changed my life and, and gives me hope that this can be a way we handle the rising stress and depression of our times, which is just go find a little bit right now, you know. You can find it uh, looking up at the sky. You can find it on a walk. Like one of your, your uh, listeners, I find awe listening to kids play. You know, and they're playing in parks around. So I really believe, and I think a central hope, insight from the book is there's awe all around us. When I visited prisoners, and I do work in prisons, and I was in San Quentin Prison, and I asked them what gives you awe, these guys are living in horrific conditions. Mm -hmm. And their answers were everyday awe. It was like reading, getting my high school diploma, seeing my child visit me. Uh, reading the Quran, et cetera. Here, la my cellies, laughter, the light in the sky. Um, you know, it's there for us to benefit from. And we just need to shift how we approach it. A minute ago, you said this realization of everyday awe changed. It sounds like it changed your research approach, but yeah. that it also changed your life. Yeah. And I'm interested in that part of the equation. How did it change your life? Yeah, you know, Carrie, one of the reasons I wrote this book um, has to do with my brother, who, Rolf, who mm -hmm. he was one year younger. And he, he and I led a life of awe. And, and almost every awe-inspiring thing I somehow shared with him, you know, from childhood rafting to the Beatles to, you know, becoming dads and so forth. And he got colon cancer and in two horrific years succumbed and passed away. And, and it was really striking. This was about three years ago. Um, I was awe-deprived. I was anxious and panicky and couldn't sleep and nothing made sense. And, and that's grief, right? Grief, when you lose people with whom you construct reality and make sense of your world, 
uh, you're in a very uh, complicated state. And I was. Mm. And this voice said, literally, Dacker, find awe. Um, and, and I was like, man, I, I have to, on a daily basis, you know, just to find my way again, find it. And, you know, think about looking up at clouds for a while each day and listening to water. And I, I watched water a lot, streams and rain and so forth. Um, I really thought hard about who are the people who are morally beautiful to me and read up on them. I listened to music in a different way. I returned to Brian Eno and minimalism. Like, what what am I feeling here? Why is this so important to me? What do I think about life? I read I read things about life and death. Life and death are universal sources of awe. So how do I think about this life cycle, right? Um, I went hiking in mountains that my brother and I had gone to. And, and I really, you know, um, carry out of that hardship, profound hardship, uh, as hard as anything in my life, um, you know, what you might call depression and anxiety in some sense, um, I found all kinds of everyday awe, you know, that sustained me today. You know, I think this is all the more your experience with this is all the more remarkable because you do describe going back to these places yeah. that were so meaningful yeah. for you and your brother and remembering yeah. down to the, it sounds like the conversation Oh yeah, and trying to recapture, you know, what does it mean to experience this without him? Does that, mm. right? Does yeah. that vanish the sense of awe? Yeah. Thank, but, thank you for. But you found that it did not. I think. Yeah. What a what a, a deep reading of what I try to write about grief in this book. Yeah. You know, Carrie, um, I was instinctively drawn to the places of awe that I had shared with my brother in our life, uh, particular mountain ranges in the Eastern Sierras, and you know, rivers and uh, museums and and the like. And I would go there and, you know, one of the things that happens in particular kinds of grief is, you know, you lose a way of relating and seeing the world that was part of that relationship. And I saw the world with my brother. I felt the world through his feeling I, and I acted in it through his wisdom. And he was gone, right? And I suddenly was like, God, I can't make sense of anything. And I would go to these places and I realized that both are true, that I still relate to mountains and paintings and the like with him. And then I'm also a new person with new ideas that came out of the wonder of, of awe and grief and trying to make sense of his passing. You know, there's so much interesting research going on about grief. that yeah. it and, I, and I've interviewed some of the researchers about it. It sounds like this could be very important work in that realm as well. You know, when I, um, in the pandemic, I taught lots of healthcare providers, um, thousands at, who watched a million people die in really horrible conditions and, and try to deal with the families living with that, right? And, and it was a singular insight that they generated, like, there's so much awe in, in, in the life cycle and watching it go. And if we can name it 
and build on that, right? What wonders do you see? What did this person give to you that's indelible, to use your word, the past? And build on that, like a lot of cultures do. You know, the Day of the Dead ceremonies in Mexico uh, and the like. Um, then we can really start to find growth in in grief, which a lot of people do, which I did, and I did it through awe. So I, I'm hopeful uh, that that could be an outgrowth of this book. We're going to close with some music. Mm. Um, should we close with Brian Eno? Yeah, I would love if you played one one <laughs> of Brian Eno. I'd be very happy. <laughs> Decker Keldner is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. His new book is titled Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Professor, thank you so much for, for a really enriching conversation. Uh, Carrie, thank you so much for the, the really thoughtful reading of, of this work on Awe. I really appreciate it.